Welcome to Rings and Realms. Exploring Prime Video's Rings of Power. I'm Dr. Corey Olson. I'm Dr. Maggie Park. And during this show, we're going to be doing a close analysis of Prime Video's new show, The Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power. Each week, we'll do a summary of the episode that just dropped, and then we'll talk a little bit about the adaptation decisions that they made in taking Tolkien's works and putting them on screen. And then uh, Corey's going to do a bit of a deep dive into some of Tolkien's lore. J.R.R. Tolkien's stories are really rich, and I can't wait to take a closer look at how the Rings of Power show interacts with the stories. So why am I here? I've been a voice in the Tolkien community for a long time, teaching the works of J.R.R. Tolkien online. I'm the president and founder of Signum University, and I got my PhD in medieval literature from Columbia University. I've been running the Tolkien Professor podcast for 14 years now. I wrote a book called Exploring J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit, and I'm now writing a new book called Exploring The Lord of the Rings, Part One. It's gonna be discussing book one, of the Lord of the Rings, um, and it's being published progressively by the Signum University Press, which means you can get early access to the book as I write, and you can even be involved in giving feedback into the writing process. I run several long-term weekly broadcasts on Tolkien. There's Exploring the Lord of the Rings, which is my discussion of the Lord of the Rings sentence by sentence. We've been going for about five years now, and we should be finished within about another 35 years or so. Uh, there's the Mythgard Academy Book Club, and also the Silmarillion Film Project, which is a totally theoretical adaptation of J.R.R. Tolkien's Silmarillion. At Signum University, I've organized several academic programs, including our space program, Signum Portals to Adult Continuing Education. And these are casual, affordable, short modules taught by people who are really passionate about their subjects. We also have a master's degree program in language and literature with specializations in Tolkien studies, Germanic philology, and fantasy and science fiction literature. Now, why am I here? Um, I'm a professor at Signum University. Um, I have been for about five years, and I've taught a range of different classes with them, from Celtic folklore to Tolkien and King Arthur and the Inklings, uh, fantasy literature. It's been lovely. I'm also the director of the Mythgard Institute there. I have my master's in medieval literature, focusing on King Arthur, actually, and medieval texts into modern texts. So I kind of started down that adaptation road. And then my PhD was in adaptation studies, both from Bangor Universities in Wales in the UK. Um, I focused on the adaptation of event films and fandoms, looking at how books turn into films and who makes those decisions and how they kind of consider fandoms in the process of doing that. Um, I like seeing how the audiences engage with these texts and how they engage with the adaptations. I also just so loved my time in Wales that I ended up moving there. Um, I work with study in Wales and I lecture at two study abroad campuses in London. I've also worked in film for some time uh, in script development and I researched on the sets of Twilight and on Marvel's Captain America. A lot of other small ones too, but those are the big shiny ones. Um, I love the practical production elements of filmmaking and taking that adaptation theory and fans into consideration when talking about these practices. Now, I won't normally be here in person. This is just a fun little thing I get to do, but I'll be in the UK. So we'll figure out a way to get me in here and talk about adaptation and be part of the show. But I'm glad to be here in person today for this intro episode. I hope you can see how excited we are for this show. I can't wait to embark on this adventure. Neither can I. Let's get started. Okay, so normally this is the segment when I summarize and discuss the episode of The Rings of Power that we just watched, but we haven't seen any yet. So instead, I'm going to summarize the entire history of Middle-earth 
according to J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, briefly. So we're most familiar with the story of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, right? And that happens at the very end of the Third Age. So what does that mean, Third Age? Well, if it's the Third Age, what happened in the First and Second Ages, right? And this is important because, of course, the Second Age is where the action of the Rings of Power is going to take place. So let's go back to the First Age. The First Age begins literally with the creation of the world, right? Now, in Middle-earth, there actually is a monotheistic god, though he doesn't take direct part very often in the action. Instead, he delegates power to a group of sort of angelic beings who are called the Valar. And the Valar descend into Middle-earth, and they take up the governance of Middle-earth. They shape it and make it. They're in charge, okay? Now, one of the Valar, the greatest of the Valar, was Melkor, and he rebels against Iluvatar, who is the the omnipotent god. He rebels against Iluvatar and tries to establish his own dominion over everything. Melkor is basically the Satan figure of Middle-earth, and after his rebellion, later on, his name is changed to Morgoth, the black enemy of the world. Um, So Morgoth is a problem, right? And initially there's a war between the Valar and Morgoth, but it's a very damaging war, like whole continents get shattered uh, when this happens. Uh, and that's, a, uh, that's, a, that's a, a, a sort of a dangerous thing. Now the Valar, they set up on their own in a protected kingdom called Valinor, off in the west. Um, so Valinor is the undying lands where they live in peace. And in the center of Valinor are the two trees. And the two trees are one of the most important mythic concepts in all of Tolkien's world. They're the gold tree and the silver tree, which glow with their own light. And they sort of alternate glowing and their light fills all of Valinor. They're the most beautiful and precious things ever in the history of Middle-earth. But Morgoth is eventually defeated by the Valar and they take him prisoner and they put him in prison in Valinor. But after a while, he gets out on probation, which turns out not to be such a great move as in the end, of course, big surprise, Morgoth violates his probation. And he violates his probation by destroying the trees. We have the, 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 he kills the trees. Uh, and their light is vanished from the world. This is called the darkening of Valinor, and he flees back. Now, meanwhile, while all of this stuff has been happening, while Morgoth was in prison, um, some of the the species, the new species of uh, living creatures in Middle-earth have awakened. The elves awaken first. The dwarves come right afterwards. There's a fun story about that. Um, And then the humans awaken after that. So they're all now living in Middle-earth. And the Valar don't want to just pursue Morgoth with war uh, into Middle-earth because they might wreck the place again. uh, And that might kill all of the humans and elves and dwarves and they don't want that to happen. Um, So they, they instead fortify Valinor and prevent anybody from being able to come back into Valinor so that their land is protected and there are many of the elves who are living with them now in Valinor, but Middle-earth is still vulnerable. Some of the elves choose to come back and they cross over the sea and return to Middle-earth in order to pursue Morgoth to try to fight against him. Um, uh, Morgoth, when he left, he stole the Silmarils, these three gems which have the light of the trees imprisoned within them. So they shine with the radiance of that precious magical light of the trees. 
and Morgoth has stolen them. And th- that's kind of the, the big, uh, uh, the, the, the point of tension, you know, between the elves and Morgoth. They're trying to get the Silmarils back there in the first stage. So they lay siege to Morgoth in his stronghold in the north. And uh, it's a long war and it does not go well because he, Morgoth, has developed his own creatures. He's invented the orcs. He has bred the dragons. He's made the trolls uh, and other really horrible creatures. Um, and so there's this long war and it is a little bit depressing because the elves who have come over to Middle-earth, they set up these wonderful cities, uh, the legendary elf city of Gondolin, uh, and many other places. You can read about Gondolin in The Hobbit and and in The Lord of the Rings as well. Um, And all of these places are destroyed one by one as Morgoth and his orcs and dragons just grind all of the elves into the ground. It's grim reading, uh, the latter portions of the Silmarillion, until in the end... The only elves that are left are those, there's this this one refuge of the elves kind of still clinging to the shores of Middle-earth and Morgoth has dominated the whole rest of the continent and destroyed everything else. But at that moment, we get the unexpected turn. The armies of the Valar show up. They return to Middle-earth and they fight against Morgoth uh, and they defeat his armies and they destroy most of his orcs and dragons, though not all of them, some survive. And then they capture Morgoth, chain him up, and they cast him into outer darkness permanently. That's the end of the first age. It's called the War of Wrath, when the, 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 the wrath of the Valar returns to Middle-earth. And guess what? They actually did wreck the place uh, when they return. And the continent of Beleriand, where all of these things happened in the first age, sinks into the sea. But... The bad guy is defeated. Morgoth, the great enemy, is not destroyed, but he's chained and he's cast into outer darkness. And so it looks like peace has finally returned again. So when the Second Age begin, most of the elves have sailed away. Most of the elves return back to Elvenholm, to Valinor in the west. But some of the elves choose to stay, right? Um, And when they choose to stay, they think... Now we're living in the land of bliss that we always dreamed of, right? We can stay in Middle-earth and make Middle-earth into what it should have been, right? Because Morgoth is gone now. And we don't, fortunately, we don't have to worry about any bad guys left in Middle-earth, think the elves, right? The dwarves, meanwhile, are still in their kingdoms. And the centerpiece in the Second Age is Khazad-dûm. Khazad-dûm is the greatest dwarf stronghold ever. It is the most glorious city of all of the dwarves. And we see it in the Second Age at its height. It is one of the wonders of the world. Um, There are the humans, right? So the humans, there are sort of two different stories with the humans in the Second Age. On the one hand, we have the human societies which are left in Middle-earth, right? Um, And they're kind of spread out all over Middle-earth. There are a whole bunch of sort of human survivors in Middle-earth. And they continue to scratch out a really hard existence. Morgoth is not there with his armies of orcs, and that's kind of nice, right? But at the same time, they're, uh, they're at a low level of technology. They're barely able to scratch out a living there uh, in the Second Age. It is, uh, uh, Tolkien says that their lot is unhappy. However, 
there were some of the humans who allied themselves to the elves in their wars in the first age. And although those wars did not go well, and many of the humans uh, you know, were, were killed alongside the elves who were their allies, some of them survive. And to them, at the end of the first age, when the, Valar, uh, you know, when the people of the Valar return uh, to defeat Morgoth, they take those remaining human allies of the, of the elves and they transport them to an island. They reward them with the land of gift, the island of Numenor. And this is a land of peace. And the Valar heap blessings upon this human society. Their land is incredibly rich and fertile. They themselves, the people, are given long life. Their lifespan is like doubled, basically, um, uh, from what normal mortals experience. And that society grows and becomes rich. Numenor is one of the great stories, one of the great uh, sort of images in all of Tolkien's writings. He loved the idea of the island of Numenor, the basically a parallel to the Atlantis story that Tolkien was telling. But the Numenorians, they eventually, they come back to Middle-earth and they help the humans in Middle-earth. But over time, the Numenorians become more and more proud, more and more arrogant, and Numenor heads into a decline, a pretty serious decline, and things get pretty dodgy. Um, in addition, of course, we should keep in mind uh, that hobbits are also around, right? Tolkien has said that the hobbits were, came into being back in the Elder Days, back in the First Age. So we know the hobbits are there, uh, scratching their way into some kind of existence uh, in Middle-earth like the other humans who were over there. Now, unfortunately, evil has not, in fact, vanished from Middle-earth, even though Morgoth has been imprisoned. Uh, not just imprisoned, he's not just in jail this time. Cast into outer darkness, he is gone. Right? Not dead, but gone. Sauron, however, remains. Sauron was his lieutenant, the right-hand guy of Morgoth through the First Age. And at the end of the First Age, when the War of Wrath has been won by the good guys and Morgoth has been chained, Sauron comes before the Valar and repents. Right? He appears to apologize, to mend his ways, and stop being a bad guy. Right? But then he thinks better of that and he slinks away and decides, actually, no, I'm going to set up for myself as the new Dark Lord, right? There's a vacuum of power and I'm going to step into it. And that's the, the rise to power, the establishment of Sauron, uh, you know, building up his power base uh, and beginning to make his moves uh, to take over the entire continent and succeed in doing what Mor the job that Morgoth did not finish. This is what Sauron is setting out to do. But he's got a problem. He's got a challenge, and that is there are some significant uh, people, right, who are opposing him. He is not necessarily strong enough on his own to be able just to take down everybody, right? Some of the elf lords are very powerful. The kingdom of Khazad-dûm is very powerful. The Numenorians are a force to be reckoned with, right? How is he going to be able to undermine and take out all of these people? And that's where he, his rings of power plan comes in. He devises this strategy whereby if he can make rings, these rings of power and he can convince these different peoples, the leaders of his op opponents and enemies, if he can convince them to take up these rings of power, he can corrupt them and even enslave them and make them serve his own will. And through them and by overcoming them, he can take out 
everybody and uh, dominate the entire continent. But this is actually a really risky move. The gambit of the rings of power, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a big gamble uh, for Sauron because in order to do that, the, the keystone of this plan is the one ring, the ruling ring which is called that because he, he makes the one ring of power which is able to dominate everybody else. If he distributes these rings of power and then he can rule them through his one ring, he's got them, right? But in order to make that ring powerful enough to overcome all of his enemies, he needs to pour a huge amount of his own power, of his own being, his own essence into that ring. And that makes him vulnerable because that means that if he were ever to lose that ring then that ring which contains his power, his essence, could theoretically be destroyed. And if it were, then his own essence and power would be evaporated forever. And he would, uh, uh, would never be able uh, to rise to power in any way ever again. So it's a huge gamble he takes. And I got to tell you, I am really interested in the, in the character arc of Sauron in the Rings of Power show. And I can't wait to see, I hope we get to see some of Sauron's own reasoning. What is he doing, right? How does he rationalize this risk, this gamble, right, to do the Rings of Power plan? I think it's going to be really interesting to see. Now, in the end, um, we're going to end in war with Sauron. The Rings of Power gambit immediately in the Second Age is a mixed success. It does enable him to overcome some of his enemies, but not all. And at the end of the day, the survivors of Numenor and the survivors of the elves, there have been wars going on, they band together into what is called the last alliance of elves and men. And they come to attack Sauron. They lay siege to Sauron in his stronghold in Mordor. And of course, we end up with a climactic fight between Sauron himself uh, and the greatest of his enemies there on the slopes of Mount Doom, the Fire Mountain. Um, this, of course, is the scene that Peter Jackson depicted in the prologue sequence of the Fellowship of the Ring film. Lots of people are familiar with this. That is the last, the end, the, 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 the defeat of Sauron and the taking away from him of the Ring of Power, the One Ring, is the end of the Second Age. Uh, and that, of course, then the loss of the One Ring, which then, of course, eventually gets found and ends up with Bilbo and then Frodo uh, in the more familiar story of The Lord of the Rings is where we're headed in the Third Age. But that is an overview of what we get from, uh, from, from Tolkien, the history of these three ages, focusing especially on that Second Age that we're going to be seeing in the Rings of Power show. Okay, so before we get into the deep analysis of the Amazon show, I just want to give you a couple of tools about adaptation to kind of help you step into this process, to think about it more open-mindedly. Because adaptation can be tough, you know? If you're going to watch a film or a TV show based on a book that you absolutely love, your defenses are almost automatically up, right? You feel very personally attached to this text that you love, and how dare somebody else show you how it's done? 
text to film can be tough. So if you think about something like that opening line of The Hobbit, in a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit. He goes on to describe it, Tolkien describes it with, with words that we can kind of understand. It wasn't like this, it wasn't like this. It was a cozy hobbit home. But we're all picturing that in completely different ways. So that can be really tough, that a million different ways to picture that. And then all of a sudden, we have an image that comes in that's totally different from what I pictured. That can be jarring. However, we also get opportunities where some art could come in and then give us an idea of what that is. So that could be a film. The first time you see something on film is the first time you understand what that hobbit hole looks like. Or it could be concept art, like John Howe's iconic image of a hobbit hole. Um, that all of a sudden then takes the place of that discrepancy, of, of that uncertainty, and gives us a little bit of grounding. But if you don't have that, then it's, I'm going to build this text, I'm going to build these images from this text and have this picture in my head, and if what I see is different, that's going to be tough for me. And I get that. I absolutely get that. It's, it's really hard to engage with a visual medium of something that you love. Also along with that is some of the language of adaptation can be really tough. There's a lot of emotions involved in adaptation and watching these things on screen. The language of adaptation is really tricky. You, words are used a lot like betrayal, uh, infidelity, bastardization, faithfulness. Like these are really loaded words, right? Um, they have a lot of connotations attached to them and can be really difficult to use to talk about something like a film without emotion. <laughs> so it's hard to be too analytical when you're using those words. Um, so the whole language around adaptation studies has always been a little bit fraught. So the goal with this whole presentation and for the, this section within the show of, of talking about adaptation is to provide you with a few tools so you can walk into that cinema, you can put on Rings of Power and hopefully have a slightly more open mind and try to engage with this as one interpretation of a story, as one group of people or one director or one artist's vision taking Tolkien's text and turning it into something that we can see. Um, if you have seen an episode of uh, Other Minds and Hands where we talked to John Howe, he was talking about how Tolkien was an artist, how he used words to paint his pictures, and how John Howe uses pencil to do the same thing. Film has a lot of tools at its disposal to tell a story. It can use camera angles, it can use sound, it can use shading, color, costume, actor performance, and music. All of these things together can give you emotion, can give you setting, can give you pacing, can give you tension. So we're going to try to show some of those techniques and those things to you. So when you do see a shot, you don't go, oh, no, that's not how it is. It might be more of, oh, interesting choice. Let's take a look at that. So just trying to bring it down a notch. Um, the goal is that you, you get to have a chance to enjoy it. You don't have to love it. I don't have to love it. Nobody has to love it. But I want to try to. And if I absolutely hate it, it's not, still not going to ruin any text for me. The text is still going to be that wonderful thing that I engaged with as an individual reader, and you did as well, and it's going to still be there and fun for you. But I'm going to try to leave my torches and pitchforks at home and not come in to watch this with anger in mind. I'm going to come into it with an open mind, and I hope that we're able to provide you with some of those tools to do the same thing. So normally in the show, this is the part where I will be doing some deep dives into particular moments of, of, of the episode where something really interesting is happening with their adaptation of the Tolkien world. 
But, of course, we haven't seen any of the episodes yet. So what I'm going to do today instead is talk about some of the storylines. Some of these are things that I'm anticipating based on Tolkien's work. Some of these are informed by things that I've been told or what we've seen uh, in the trailers and everything so far. Um, so I expect one of the primary themes of the show to be mortality. Now, that might kind of surprise you. You might be like, well, okay, yeah, uh, humans are mortal, but what about elves, right? Elves are immortal. How is mortality relevant to them? But it is relevant to them. A lot of people make the mistake of thinking that because Tolkien's elves are immortal, they're unchanging, right? They just kind of exist in this eternal youth that will go until the end of time. That is not true. Tolkien's elves age and change very slowly, so to humans they may look unchanging, right? But they're not unchanging. They are aging and growing, and indeed, Tolkien says that by the end, well before the end, there's going to come a time when the elves' bodies themselves vanish, and they linger on only as invisible spirits. So although their minds and awareness will continue through the end of the world, through the end of Arda, um, they are not at all unchanging. And the moment that this show captures the second age is a very important transition moment. The first age was the sort of the high time of the elves, the elder days of the elves. When the transition comes to the second age, things start changing. And first of all, this means the elves being uncertain about what is their job? What is their role? As the world changes and develops, what are they supposed to do? And how are they going to come to grips with the way that they are changing, but more importantly, with how the world is changing around them, right? Because although they do grow and change, it's very, very slow, and the world is changing much more quickly about them, and they're not a huge fan of that. So that's another way in which this kind of mortality issue is relevant to the elves. Now, of course, the centerpiece of the mortality theme for the Second Age is humans, of course, and in particular, the Numenorians. So humans obviously have a very, very much shorter lifespan than elves. Um, the Numenorians are given a longer lifespan. So the Numenorians, remember, are the group of humans who are being rewarded by the Valar, and they're gifted the island of Numenor, and it's this beautiful island, and it's perfect, and uh, they're peaceful and happy, but they're still mortal. They still die of old age. And as time goes on and their, their, their power and influence grows, they begin to become more and more resentful of the fact that they're still mortal. They know the elves and they see the elves continuing on, apparently to them unchanging, right? And they begin to long for that unchanging, unending life, apparently unending life for themselves. And so as the, as this becomes a greater and greater problem, uh, with the humans being more and more concerned about this, and this leads them into some serious problems later on. The dwarves also, in their own fashion, have a question about mortality. I predict, though, that the focus of that is going to be a little bit different. I'm not sure exactly what they're doing with the dwarf plot lines uh, in The Rings of Power, but one of the things that I think that we can see, one of the central things that we've been shown in the trailers, and one of the most interesting things about the dwarf situation in the Second Age, is that we're seeing Khazad-dûm, the greatest of all the dwarf houses, and we're seeing it at the pinnacle of its glory and strength. 
right? So I think that the dwarves are likely to fit into this mortality theme in a more sort of cultural way. That is, not the dwarves individually worrying about their mortality, though they are mortal. They have longer lifespans than humans, somewhere around twice as long as humans generally. Um, but they still die of old age, though we don't really know what happens to dwarves when they die. But anyway, um, the dwarf society and the potential decline of dwarf society, I think is likely to be an issue there. One of the reasons I think uh, this is that in the first age, there were two great dwarf houses, Nograd and Belagost, and those have perished. Right? Those were the greatest houses of the ancient dwarves. And yet, they've fallen. They're gone now. Right? And some of the survivors, right? some of the descendants of the survivors of those fallen houses are living in Khazadum now. So is there an awareness that as wonderful, as great and glorious as Khazadum is now, what comes next? What can they do? What's going to happen to them? Are they fated for the same decline? How should they interact with the world around them, right? Should they help the elves and the humans and join with them? Should they stick to themselves? What is most likely to, to, to lead to, you know, their continuation or perhaps usher in their destruction as a society, right? So I think the question of how can we make what we have here in Khazad-dûm even greater or how can we make it last? I think that's going to be one of the primary questions with the dwarves. And of course, into all of this comes Sauron, right? The ring giver. Sauron, who is going to be offering rings of power that offer eternal life, which offer the ability to, to stop the world changing around you, which offers the ability to, uh, uh, to, to increase your wealth and power, right? The power of your society. These are the offerings that Sauron is going to be giving to the elves and to the humans and to the dwarves. Uh, and so I think that uh, we're going to see the mortality theme really come together through Sauron's offering of the Ring of Power. But speaking of Sauron, one of the main questions that everyone has been asking when they've been watching the trailer is, who is Sauron, right? Which one is Sauron? Uh, you know, we have people arguing about, oh, I think that person is Sauron and that person isn't. Uh, by the way, in my opinion, I don't think we've seen Sauron at all. I don't think any of the people that we've seen are, are, are Sauron. Um, but who is the bad guy is a question that not only are the, you know, the fans currently asking of the, you know, marketing materials that we've seen, but this is also a question that the characters within the show are going to be asking too. Remember I explained that at the end of the first stage, Morgoth, the big bad guy, right, the sort of Satan figure of Middle-earth, has been uh, condemned, chained up, and banished, right? Which means the elves at the beginning of the Second Age, the elves who stay in Middle-earth, they think it's all over, right? It was bad in the first age, but they think it's done now, and that peace has come and evil has been removed from the world. They have every reason to think that. Right? But of course, what they don't know is that his lieutenant, Morgoth's lieutenant, Sauron, has remained and is preparing to start establishing himself as the new Dark Lord. But he begins doing that in secret. And so he's going to kind of come out of nowhere for a lot of the characters, the Numenorians, the elves, they're not going to, the dwarves, they don't have any idea who, like, you know, about Sauron. Very few people are going to remember him, and fewer perhaps are going to take him seriously at the beginning. But what we're going to see is Sauron's rise to power. I expect this to be a major theme of season one. 
Um, Sauron's rise to power. So I think who we're seeing in the trailers is none of them are Sauron, I believe. I believe what we're seeing are Sauron's lieutenants, right? As he begins to establish his own power base and his supporters, and they're going to go out and they're going to try to to corrupt and sort of convert uh, some of the other societies in Middle-earth to support Sauron. He's going to establish his power base, Mordor, the Black Land, where Sauron, uh, of course, had where Mount Doom is and, 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 and the, the Dark Tower and everything that we see in the Lord of the Rings. Um, it's in the Second Age that Sauron first occupies Mordor and makes that into his stronghold. And I think that's going to be a major theme. I think it's going to be one of the focal points of the storyline of season one. Um, so we should see the beginning of Sauron rising to power and people trying to figure out who he is and what's going on and how bad things are likely to actually get over the course of, you know, towards the end of the second age. But everybody who survived from the first age lost almost everybody they knew in the first stage. The centerpiece for this theme in the show, as far as we've been able to tell from all the trailers, is Galadriel. The grief of Galadriel, uh, the trauma of Galadriel, has been one of the focal points of the trailers that we've seen so far. And I think she's a great choice uh, for really bringing this forward. The end, goodness, the end of the first stage is traumatic to read about, for crying out loud. Uh, to experience it, it must have been absolutely horrible. Her entire family died. All of the great elvish kingdoms that had been established have been destroyed. And she lives on and is now trying to move forward and to do something, right? To, to, to do something to, to continue that, to rebuild that. Um, her kind of coming to grips with that and all of the elves trying to, to, to move forward into this new positive age, hopefully, right? Um, is going to be another one of the major focal points, I think. But of course, then we also have the decline of Numenor. Numenor, as I've mentioned, was this blissful island, right? Where the human survivors of the first age were brought, um, and they established their peaceful culture. Tolkien based the island of Numenor on the myth of Atlantis. He loved the myth of Atlantis and explicitly said that he was going to set out to, to do the Atlantis myth, as he wrote in a, a famous note in a margin of one of his, uh, of one of his texts. Numenor is Atlantis, the great, glorious, legendary kingdom that rises to great technological sophistication and enormous power, right? But, Numenor is going to decline. The story of the decline of Numenor is one of the primary stories of the Second Age. Indeed, it's one of the stories that Tolkien spent most of his time writing. Um, of all of the Second Age stories, the story of, of Numenor uh, is the one that he wrote most about. So if you want to read more about that, the, the, the longest version of that is in the Akalabeth uh, in the Silmarillion if you want to read it there. Um, but the story of the Numenorians is one of, as I say, of glory and of decline. And the decline comes not as like, you know, they just sort of lose technology or are conquered exactly. It comes from within, right? They grow to glory and power, but then increasing arrogance. Uh, and they begin, and they change, right? At first, when they sail back to Middle Earth, they come back as benefactors, right? They've now technologically advanced. Um, so they are way beyond, uh, they know so much that the, the humans who still live in Middle-earth don't know yet, right? So first they come back and they teach them like agricultural techniques and everything. Um, they're a real blessing to them. But then, of course, as time goes on, they begin to be more arrogant and more greedy and they begin to, to take tribute from the people of Middle-earth and then they begin to dominate over them and it gets pretty bad, 
by the end of the Second Age. But of course, it's a story of tragedy. Numenor is one of the greatest civilizations ever in the history of Middle-earth. And at the end of the Second Age, we see it coming, crashing down, rotting from within. And that's really a tragedy. And this is going to be one of the most challenging things for this show. One of the things I'm really fascinated to see how they handle uh, because of the compression of the timeline. Uh, They've chosen to tell the story of the Rings of Power show within the space of a generation of people. On the one hand, this makes a whole lot of sense because, of course, if they were to try to tell the story of like 3,000 years worth of time, they'd have the human characters dying of old age between every episode, right? Which would be kind of hard to maintain any kind of sense of continuity with the story if they had that happen, right? But... The challenge is by compressing the timeline, by telling the story only within the space of one generation, they have to try to capture the entire scope, right? The entire shape of the rise and the glory and the decline of Numenor so that it feels like a tragedy, right? We should be prepared as Numenor you know, starts to circle the drain uh, by, you know, as the show goes on, we should feel the pain of that, the tragedy of the loss of Numenor the Great. Now, there's another character uh, who actually has an interesting relationship with Numenor, and that's Elrond the Half-Elven. So Elrond, uh, Elrond the Half-Elven is a character that has been sort of uh, at the center of Tolkien's writings for a long time, right? Everyone who read The Hobbit as a kid will remember Elrond the half-elven there in chapter three of The Hobbit. Um, so he's a, a, a very a, a very old Tolkien character. But in this show, we're seeing him at the very beginning of his career. And although, you know, he's called Elrond the half-elven and that seems like kind of normal, right, in, in The Lord of the Rings, everybody's used to that idea in a sense. Um, this is a brand new phenomenon, at the beginning of the Second Age. Um, how this works is that Elrond and his twin brother are given the choice. They are descended from both humans and elves, and they're given the choice moving forward, what people do they want to belong to, right? Do they want to be counted among the elves and, ha- and receive the fate of the elves, or do they want to be counted among the humans and receive the fate of the humans? And they choose differently. Elrond's twin brother, Elros, chooses to be human, and he is made the first king of Numenor. So he is at the head of the lines we should be seeing. Uh, yeah, I'm sure we'll see like huge statues of Elros, Elrond's twin brother, there in Numenor. Elrond chooses to be counted among the elves. Uh, so he's half elven, but it's the half that counts for Elrond, right? And so he is now living among the elves as one of them. He, he's with Gilgalad, um, and he is sort of uh, the right-hand guy of Gilgalad in the texts that we're told that that's his role for a long time. He and Gilgalad worked together for like more, you know, fifteen hundred years or something. Um, and of course, he's connected with Galadriel, and and you know, so he's known among the elves. But what is his role? When? What does it mean to be the half-elven? Right? I talked about how the elves themselves are not really sure what is their role in Middle Earth anymore. Right? What is their relationship with Middle Earth? Well, Elrond's is even more uncertain. Right? His whole family is gone. His parents are gone. His brother is gone. He's the only survivor, and he's trying to make this new life for himself. What is his position? in Middle-earth, and how does he fit in uh, to where things are going? We know where he's going to end up eventually, right, with uh, Elrond and Rivendell. Um, We're familiar with his future, but he is not yet, and I think that's going to be interesting to see. 
Of course, the show is called The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power, right? So the Rings of Power are a certain focus of the entire show. Um, I don't expect to see the Rings of Power forged during the first season. I think, I think that's going to be a season two thing. However, um, the, obviously the, the question of the Rings of Power, what I expect us to see in season one is the setup of who is going to be offered the Rings of Power and why might they say yes, right? So, of course, it's one of the really intriguing things that I think was very clever in the release of all these hands posters, right, at the very beginning uh, of, the, uh, of, of the marketing season because, of course, that's really sort of the focal point. The, the sort of the question, the implicit question, right, in the hands posters is which one of these hands is going to have a Ring of Power on it? Right? We're going to get the nine rings uh, for mortal men and we're going to get the seven rings for the dwarves and the three rings for the elves. Who is going to take them and why? Right? Who's going to take them? Who's going to want them? Who's going to reject them? Right? For whom you know, might it never come up? We don't know. Um, but that's going to be, I think, a really big and interesting question. Now, finally, I want to say a few things about the Harfoots. People have been asking about these Hobbit characters, and there's been some confusion. There's been some uncertainty about them. Uh, a lot of people are, have been saying, well, wait, there aren't any Hobbits in the Second Age. Why are they, why are they doing this? That's not correct. Um, Tolkien said very clearly in the prologue to The Lord of the Rings that the Hobbits have existed since the Elder Days, which means the First Age. The Hobbits have been around for a really, really long time. Now, what we're told in The Lord of the Rings is that the stories about them have not been remembered. No one's recorded what the Hobbits have been up to over that time. So we know they were there, but we have no idea what they were doing. Right. So in this show, we're getting some extrapolation. Right. What exactly were the, the, the Harfoots up to? Now, why are they called Harfoots? Why don't they just call them Hobbits? Well, again, in the prologue to the Lord of the Rings, we're told that the modern day Hobbits, right, the Lord of the Rings age Hobbits, are descended from three different uh, sort of families of proto-hobbits, right? There were three sort of hobbit subspecies, um, all of whom have kind of come together and their kind of combined ancestors are the modern hobbits that we know in the Lord of the Rings. And that those three ancestral families were the Harfoots, the Stores, and the Phalahides. So the Harfoots that we're meeting in this show are one of those three branches, basically. And we're told that those are like the most uh, sort of normal, standard kind of hobbits, right? So they're, in, in some ways, they're sort of the most direct ancestors of the hobbits that we know. Um, now, so that's why they call them Harfoots, but why are they there? Why do we have them? Well, I think there are a couple ways in which we can understand that. One is, it is very important for the, pers- from the point of view of the story. In The Lord of the Rings, we see The Lord of the Rings from the perspective of the hobbits. And so lacking a hobbit perspective... I think would change the story in some really important ways. I'm going to be interested to watch. Are there ways in which the Harfoot's perspective really informs, uh, is sort of designed to inform the viewer's perspective? I think we've already seen this pretty clearly in the trailers. Think of how often the, the Harfoot voices have been the, the dominant kind of voiceover voices uh, in, the, uh, in, in the trailer. So I think that's been something we've already seen. But the other thing to focus on with the Harfoots um, is the theme that Tolkien laid out of small hands doing big things, right? This is, a, you know, it's based on a speech by Elrond at the end of the Council of Elrond to Frodo that 
the great events of the, you know, the end of the age and, and the great triumphs that happen at the end of the Lord of the Rings are not due only and certainly not due exclusively to the, the great actions by the great heroes, right? The small people doing small things make really, really important contributions. Humility is one of the most important themes in the entire Lord of the Rings. And I suspect that they wanted to introduce that theme into this show as well. So they, they wanted some smaller hands uh, to be involved. I have no idea how they're going to be involved in this story. I don't know what the Harfoots are going to contribute exactly to the overall storyline. Um, but I am hoping, I believe and hope, uh, that they're going to be doing this kind of small hands uh, humility theme. And I'm fascinated to see how that comes out. So... Those are a few of the storylines that I am looking forward to and anticipating and I think are going to be really fascinating to watch as they develop throughout the Rings of Power Season 1. Thank you so much for joining us. As you can tell, we're really excited about this. I mean, it's the biggest budget production ever to exist on text that we love. So it's going to be thrilling. Absolutely. And this is really an adventure, as I mentioned before. We're filming this week by week as the show comes out, so we have no idea what's coming up next. And just so you know, we're filming this with a bunch of volunteers. We're all volunteering our time at Studio Lab in Derry, New Hampshire, and it's fantastic. So it's a lot of fun for us to be part of this community, and we're so glad that you're part of our community as well. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time.